I'm Taj Bickle, the Executive Director of the Hindu American Foundation, or 8AF. On Monday, May 2nd, 2022, National Public Radio's Morning Edition ran a story titled, Some South Asian Americans Believe Caste-Based Prejudices Exist in the U.S. I was interviewed for that story and spoke to a reporter for over half an hour. The topic is extremely complex and the unintended consequences are serious for millions of Americans of South Asian origin. We'd like to offer listeners the interview in its entirety, since only a few seconds were selected for the broadcast, which resulted in the telling of a story that in our view is incomplete. Here's the full interview. Did did those instructions I sent make... um, Oh, you know what? Honestly, I didn't even... Read. And let's do it right now. Do you want me to go through memo? Because I usually just do voice yeah, memo. Exactly right. Okay. That is what is, you've got it. You're ahead of me. Yeah. It's voice memo. Okay. Um, and um, you can you can sort of put it on the desk next to you. If you have a some books or anything that you can maybe sort of stack it on to get it slightly closer to your mouth. I will um, put it on a candle. How about that? There we go. Awesome. So it's just uh, and, right below my voice. Perfect. 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 And then yes, you just press record and then you'll send it to me at the end. And it's actually can, can sometimes, can sometimes be really good audio. Yes. I am just going to record here in case something goes wrong. It's always good to have backup. Great. Recording in progress. Okay. All right. So let me, are you ready? Mm-hmm. Awesome. So uh, first, uh, will you give me your name and your title? Yes. Um, hold on just one second. All right. Um, so my name is Suhag Shukla, and I'm the executive director for the Hindu American Foundation. And can you give me um, a sort of a brief description of what the Hindu American Foundation is? Um, what just sort of for those who for those who don't know? Yeah, absolutely. So the Hindu American Foundation is a uh, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that educates the public about Hindus and Hinduism and advocates for policies for the well-being of all people on the planet. Um, we work on a range of issues um, from civil rights here in the United States to human rights um, with a focus primarily in South Asia, where there's significant Hindu minorities. And our education work um, is focused on providing um, vetted, accurate, culturally proficient um, information about Hinduism to um, teachers, to educators, to members of the media, to everyone in between that wants to learn something about Hinduism. So um, the this this sort of the the, the announcement, uh, I guess, was it last week? I time mm-hmm. has no meaning anymore. I'm I so know. <laughs> yes, I think it was last. Ah, uh, no, maybe it was a week before. Been the week before. <laughs> <laughs> I know. My, my apologies. I just realized when I'm asking that question that I I don't know what time is because life is crazy. Um, uh, there's also a ten month old involved. So if you hear screams oh. in the background. Oh, the congratulations. <laughs> But it makes it an interesting working from home situation. Um, but uh, so when uh, the, the the inclusion of and, and it's been going on for a while, right? There was UC Davis and then uh, 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 San Diego. Um, what are your concerns around the inclusion of caste as a protected category? Sure. Well, I should probably also um mentioned that I'm a lawyer by training. So, um, you know, the, the basis of, of 
our, our laws in the United States. And I'm not saying that they've always lived up to these principles, but the Constitution guarantees the rights to equal protection and due process. And part of that has uh, led to civil rights legislation that provides broad, facially neutral categories that are able to uh, kind of work um, in conjunction with the growing diversity of our and the complexity of our American societies. So most of those categories, not most, rather all of those categories are what's considered facially neutral. Anyone can have a race. Anyone can have a color. Anyone can have an ancestry. When you look at a category like caste, which is singularly and exclusively associated with India, um, with Indians and, and specifically Hindus and South Asians to a lesser extent, it moves away from this long held principle of facial neutrality and becomes a facially discriminatory policy, which rather than addressing um you know, instances of discrimination will now uh, lead to a discriminatory policy on its face because it carves out a particular group on campus on the basis of their of their descent. Do you, do, so but my understanding is that it, it doesn't take away from the fact that um, ethnicity, the, the protections still still sort of exist within the anti-discrimination protections for ethnicity, for descent. So it, 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 it wouldn't exist kind of at the same space as that, like, right, where like it's just another layer of protection for those that say um, that they are facing caste-based uh, responses. But it, it's not necessary. I mean, someone can come forward and say that they have faced tribal uh, discrimination or sect-based discrimination. The whole purpose of these broad categories is to provide protection and not have to foresee what different social identities or differences are going to come through the door. I mean, take a look at gender, right? We're not saying male and female. We're saying gender. So no matter how you identify, this umbrella is going to provide you protection. I think that if we go down the path of highlighting specific uh, social identities, whether it's sect or caste or kinship or, you know, all the different things that we see across human societies across the world, there's more likelihood of leaving someone or something out as opposed to having broad categories that don't single any particular group out, but also provide protection to a broader group of people. So so you're, you're saying it's our... This is already covered. It's already covered. Exactly. If you look at the way that um, national origin, um, ancestry, how these categories have been interpreted by the courts, they already have covered uh, characteristics or various factors like birthplace, um, ethnicity, cultural background, linguistic characteristics. And all of these, one could argue, are characteristics that are associated with caste or tribe or sect or whatever else. So that is 
why cast in and of itself as an additional category, first of all, takes it out of the protocol that HR departments or whatever whatever division is tasked with um, carrying out investigations and that sort of thing. They already have protocols for national origin or ancestry or race or color. They're set of questions. When you add a category that is only specific to one group, first of all, there's already kind of a um, unconscious bias that you're inserting into the policies that somehow this category and this subset of our population merit the special carve out. And I'm not, I haven't even gotten into the fact that, that when concerned faculty were having conversations with the CALFAC leadership and CSU leadership, they couldn't point to a single example of a complaint being filed, nor could they point to a case being filed, but existing policy failing to provide redress. They also had no idea about one of the largest studies to date in a recent study done on attitudes of Indian Americans that have found, it was by Carnegie, that the predominant form of discrimination that those responding to that study had faced was on the basis of color, religion, gender, and caste was exceedingly rare. So if you're going to create a policy, there has to be some sort of basis for it. You have to first have a problem. And the problem would be, obviously, there's a problem if someone is being discriminated against on the basis of their caste. But in addition to that, you have to show that your existing policies, you tried and somehow caste is so unique, so different that it merits its own own category. But they haven't been able to do that. They didn't even test the existing policy before saying, let's just add it. It was also very clear that they had no idea about the complexity of caste. They did not contact, you know, these are concerned faculty members who have been in touch with the president of the, of the California Faculty Association since April or May. And they brought up how complex the situation is and that they were concerned about what the unintended consequences would be on close to maybe 600 faculty of Indian origin or South Asian origin, they were never contacted. So would it not behoove a union that is supposed to represent all of its members, regardless of their background, at the very least have some listening sessions with students and faculty who might be impacted either way, but they didn't do that. They just, in a very patriarchal form, took the word of some activists um, and made it into a policy. I don't even know if they contacted their general counsel because any second year law student knows the difference between facially neutral and facially discriminatory. When you talk about the unintended consequences, what do you mean? What I mean is that now Indian faculty are going to be faced with this unconscious bias because there's a category in non-discrimination policy that only 
applies to them. It singles them out. And there's a presumption that all Indians or South Asians must associate with or ascribe to a caste, regardless of what their reality is, and that they engage with others on the basis of it. It presumes that one Indian is going to know the caste of any other Indian person that they meet on campus and then treat them accordingly to whatever perceived notions they have of being better or, you know, worse or whatever that might be. So there's no other ethnic group on campus, in spite of the fact that anthropologists can attest to that Every human society has various ways in which they socialize and then, yes, develop biases or prejudice or whatever that is being treated this way. But Indian faculty are. And the other thing is here that from what we know, the activists are also of South Asian origin. What they don't understand, at least this is my presumption, is that Under the American legal system, there is no presumed perpetrator and presumed victim. And very often we've seen on social media and and in in their in, you know, the survey that's been conducted that um, many people in the media are relying on that they they speak in a rhetoric that's very disparaging of other communities and that too now will fall under this, right? They're going on and on about dominant castes are subjugating this or the, you know, these dominant castes are horrible people. They engage in violence or whatever types of stereotypes that they're promoting. Well, if you are a professor on campus and you are an activist and you engage in that sort of rhetoric and there's students in your class that um, are uncomfortable with that. Personally, I think that they should and could already file a claim under Ancestry uh, if, if that professor is creating a hostile environment in which they're not able to ask questions or they are um, being penalized because they want to bring a perspective that's different um, than than the professors in, you know, getting a bad grade or whatever the case may be. Um, This sort of uh, this sort of category actually brings about a caste consciousness that may not have been there. And by all the data if you look at Carnegie, um, even if you look at scholarship, and I don't know if you're any relation to Nicholas Dirks, but Bernard Cohen, Nicholas Dirks, C.J. Fuller, Jakob de Ruver, and others, there's a tremendous amount of scholarly research out there that says that in spite of caste um, having become a primary marker of India and Indians, um, it was neither an unchanged Survival. It's not an unchanged survival of some ancient um, India, nor is it a single system. It's far more complex than that. So, okay. So that was, a, you said a lot of things. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I don't know, it's okay. It's okay. Um, so, uh, so I want to get back to this idea that caste consciousness, that, that the kind of the, the adding it as a protection creates a caste consciousness that was not there beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um 
isn't it, I mean, like, isn't there a way to say, okay, maybe, maybe within some people it will create a consciousness, but in others it will give this extra layer of protection, right? So that it's not, you're still protected as, as Daisies, right? Like that under, under the law, because, because ethnicity and origin is not, is still, is still a, a, a category of protection. Um, and that, you know, talking about caste discrimination, it, it's not necessarily creating it. It's just conversing about it or allowing it to be protected. Right. But, but yeah, I, I'm not, look, if we, we should have conversations. Absolutely. But the fact is that if you have categories that already provide protection, why would you add a category then leads to entrenching or introducing identities that aren't there, that are not in the mix? I'll tell you as a second generation Indian American and Hindu American, I didn't even know the word caste until my ninth grade history teacher asked me about it. That that was my reality. I grew up with parents who escaped abject poverty in India. My father's mother was widowed when he was eight years old. They were, you know, hand to mouth. And because they showed some potential for education, a very wealthy woman sponsored their family to come here and they struggled. So this that whatever caste might play out in India, it was not a part of my reality. It's even less so for my children. I have friends who are from Trinidad who are five generations out. And so this is not a part of their reality. So if ancestry and national origin already provide the cover, why why add this into the mix. I'm not saying don't talk about it. Talk about it. We should address, you know, the elephant in the room. And there's a lot to learn about Indian society that we don't know yet. But there needs to be some foundations um, that ensure the safety and well-being of all of our community as ethnic minorities. We make up 1.3 or 1.4% of the entire population. And now there's a special category that only applies to us. Just let that sink in. I'm scared for my nieces and nephews who live in California. Because these activists, the same activists that pushed the proposal in their materials have labeled Diwali and Holi as castus holidays. Now caste is a category in Cal State University campuses. How will Hindu students, while Muslim students can uh, celebrate, and it's not true, number one, but while Muslim students can celebrate Eid, Christian students can celebrate Christmas, what comfort is there going to be when you have these activists who have, have the ins with the CSU administration and the faculty association and have enough bullying power to push this in without any say from the people, the vast majority of people who are going to be impacted by it. How are they supposed to feel anything but let me just retreat and keep to myself? So you think this is part of a larger kind of mechanism to potentially get rid of Holi uh, or Diwali? Yeah, 
I, I, I mean, it, it's definitely, it's definitely related. Go to the Equality Labs website or go back to their archives and see what they've written about Holi. See on UC Davis how Hindu students were shamed when they were celebrating. I can't remember whether it was Diwali this year or Holi. And the fact is that these are subaltern, these are, these are celebrations that are celebrated by every Hindu, Jain, Buddhist, Sikh community in India and here. How are students supposed to even talk about their heritage? Because some of the questions in their training materials that have been framed as casteists are questions like, oh, do you take do you take your child to Balvihar or Sunday school? Are you vegetarian? So I can ask that question if I'm at a PETA meeting, but I should be very com uncomfortable about asking that if I'm at the Indian Student Association meeting. That's the message I get. Well, wouldn't wouldn't any discrimination based on caste then be like? Uh, it would like be it, legal under the law. Right. But again, you have to go back to the legal principles that the law has to provide equal protection and due process. Equal protection means that you have facially neutral policies that protect everyone, regardless of their background. Caste is not facially neutral. So whether it's subconscious bias and or whatever else it might be. Look, if someone is is saying something um, or, or doing something that looks or feels like uh, caste based discrimination, it should be explored further. You also shouldn't just assume that it's caste based discrimination. I think so one of the kind of differences that one hears from the activists and from from what you're saying is whether or not caste is part of Asian you know the South Asian American life mm -hmm. right whether or not uh, caste is is something that exists that was that came with uh, you know generations of South Asians uh, who came from across the diaspora um, mm -hmm. and and for you it's something that was not, is not here, is not, has not been present. It, it hasn't been present in my lived experience. I'm not saying it is not present in other people's experience. That's not the point here. That, but that's my experience. Now, if you look at the Carnegie survey, for instance, you'll see that there's definitely generational differences in who's identifying by caste and who's not. I believe it was slightly, it was over half did not identify by caste. And of those that did, a good number were people who had come to the United States or who were born outside of the United States and even less so who were born here. And I think that that plays out in other gener in other diasporas, where um, if you look at the UK, you look at South Africa, you look anywhere else, the ways in which, first of all, even in India, caste is not the single thing that people identify around. There's so many other things: language, culture. I mean, you can go to any 
metro area in the United States, and you're going to find a Gujarati association. You're going to find a Tamil association. Those are the predominant ways in which Indians socialize and identify. So that's that's what the data shows, and that's what my experience shows. Um, the and I just want to give you a chance to respond. So, like, I think I heard someone say it as um, you know, um, when somebody says I don't I don't see caste or I don't know about caste, they compared it to when a white American says I don't see race. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that I mean, do you what, what do you say? What do you respond to that? analogy. Look, that's to me, that's it gets into kind of a circular argument, right? Because, well, on one hand, it denies the lived experiences of any human being, regardless of what we are on the outside. So that's just on kind of a meta level. But otherwise, I would say that caste is not something that's apparent It's not something that's readily recognizable. If you look at the Indian legal system, it's not something that's immutable because people are changing their status under scheduled caste or OBC, other backward castes constantly. Um, So this idea that you have to, you know, it's it just doesn't it's not it's a false equivalency, if that makes sense. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yes, you absolutely did. You okay. absolutely did. No, I mean, and I, and, I, and I hear what you're saying, that it's not, it is, I mean, that... Um, when I meet, when I meet other Indians... This is issues with caste scholars' uh, uh, take on Isabel Wu. I was, I was yeah, keep going. No, I was going to say that, look, when I meet other Indians, um, I let me just make sure my... Am I coming in through okay? I guess you have the audio, so it's fine. Yeah, you froze a couple of times, but I but I think it's okay. Okay, the recording's going on. When I meet other Indians, I don't even know sometimes what region of India a last name is from or um, or anything because that oftentimes is used as the evidence of caste and how people can recognize caste, but. Last names are very complex. There's so many different naming conventions in India. There are parts of South India where you take your father's first name as your last name. There are places where um, people have held on to whatever occupational guilds that they were members of and held on to those names. Um, There are other places where they are name, you know, your last name is related to some sort of religious denomination that you're a part of. So this idea that you can immediately recognize um, someone's cast by their name, which is what is oftentimes claimed, I, I don't think there's a basis in reality for that, uh, because there are names that uh, transcend various communities in India. There are also communities that have, you know, been considered unclassifiable. And um, and then you add into that mix marriage. You add into that mix of inter 
um, inter-ethnic, inter-racial marriages where, you know, you might have a parent that's Indian and a parent that's not, or you might have a parent that's Gujarati and a, uh, another parent that's Tamil. I mean, it, that's not, that's not the way that, um, we understand identity and treat one another. And then I think was, oh, I had a question and then just see, this is my brain right now. It's just Swiss cheese. Um, <laughs> my apologies. Uh, no worries. Uh, oh, okay. So this is, so another thing again, just, I, I want to get your response. When, when, when some of the, the, the folks that were advocating for, for cast as a protected category, talk about it, they talk about sort of what they want is cast abolition, mm-hmm. but that seems to me to be actually the same as what you're talking about, right? A world in which cast is not a thing. So is there any way in which, you know, I guess I'm wondering, is that in the same, the same end goal, right? That where caste is not, you know, it's not a thing and, or as, as they call it, caste abolition, in some ways that that would seem to be the sort of the same, the same end place that both of you are, are speaking of. Right. Look, no one, no one should be mistreated or discriminated against because of their ancestry. And we're on the same page as that. How we go about doing that in a way that doesn't further divide an already micro minority in this country is one thing. How we do that in a way to retain um, respect for one another um, is is also it also needs to be a part of that conversation. So we have the same end goal. It's, it's mutual respect and dignity, but I don't think that the path that they've chosen is one that's going to lead to that. Why not? Because they've actually put a target on us and them. Our, our shared challenge is that we are ethnic religious minorities in this country and where we should be working together to educate our respective communities about our rights and utilizing the laws that are in place. If even within our community, we fall short of our obligations to one another, that's where our focus should be. Is there anything else that you think is important um, for uh, for the story to kind of understand, I mean, because it's obviously incredibly complex, especially when you're trying to explain um, just basiness, let alone cast, to uh, an American audience. Yeah. Um, so, is there, any, is there anything else that you think um, is important to kind of note or to to talk mm-hmm. about or to or to raise? Yeah. Uh, it's it's hard because it, it is such a complex topic, like. Uh, you know, I haven't even touched the history or any of that, but it just gets so in the weeds. Uh, but I, I do think that, um, yeah, I don't even know it, without it going off the rails. <laughs> think about it. And yeah. I'm, I'll be working on this story for a little bit. So think about it and feel free to reach out and contact me if there's something that you like, you know, pops up for you. Um, because mm-hmm. I, I really want to try to, um, understand it in its full complexity. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, also try to translate it. 
<laughs> which is where you wanted to run into trouble. Oh. But, but if, if, there, if there's something that pops up, just, you know, feel free. You have my email, reach out to me, um, uh, and let me know. And if I have any more questions or if there's, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm available, but I, you know, I, I just do hope that you're able to capture the complexity of it. I think that in, in this kind of environment of like just seeing things in, in black and white, um, and then rushing to kind of knee jerk solutions, we're really overlooking some very, um, concerning unintended consequences. Well, then, so then maybe that is a question that I do have then. Mm-hmm. So if, if there is someone who has, you know, experienced their lived experience is caste discrimination, mm-hmm. what should they do? One, they should file a complaint. It's covered. Ancestry, national origin covers it. And if they were a CSU student or faculty who faced unlawful discrimination, and they didn't know that, that's a failure on CSU's part, not on anyone else's. CSU is failing in educating students and faculty of their rights and obligations of non-discrimination. Simple as that. And then the investigation process will, needs to be followed through. And they should be asking the same sorts of questions so they're not overlooking any details, but they're also not ascribing presumptions or unconscious bias into a situation because of kind of the prevailing stereotypes that American society is steeped in from as early as sixth grade. We learn that this pyramidal caste system is the way that Indian society always has been and still is. And now that you have people from that country here, they're like that too. And it never was the case. So that's a problem that now you, you have this prevailing stereotype that also will inform a given situation rather than objectively exploring the different perspectives in a situation. And if someone uh, was discriminated against, then they should have redress. And it's all there in existing policy. Okay. Okay. And that's, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. All right. If I have any more questions, I will. And if you have other, other things that pop up for you, feel free to reach out. That's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. If you want to help ensure that more of these get made, you can make a donation to HAF at www.indoamerican.org slash donate.